Okay, so this is Passing the Baton 12. The title is Biblical Submission, which sounds as dry as old dust. But actually, as I started to do it, what the Lord was saying to me was that the subtitle is Leaning on the Beloved. Um, and it's all about relationship. And those of you who were here before, um, uh, week 11, when we did the role and function of women, you'll see as we go into submission that we're actually building on something. And I hadn't realised that God was building something in doing these three particular, this series of three, which is the uh, role and function of women in, in, the, in the home, society and the church, followed by biblical submission, followed by um, authority and leadership in the church. So the way he's unpacking it for me is quite interesting. Um, because in working on the one that's coming up next, which is authority and leadership in the church, he's actually speaking to me about how he wants us to do church. So though it will be based on, on we will be looking at the role and function of peoples and gifts in the church, what we're looking at more is what he's actually wanting to do right now. Um, and so we're building something here and it's all about relationships. Um, when, when we come to these, it's always like family for me. I don't know how it feels for you, but when we close those doors and, and everybody's together, it just feels like family. It doesn't matter how small or how big it is. It's just totally family. And some of you have heard of some of Graham Cook's um, soaking CDs. And there's one on which he keeps saying, you are dear to me. You are dear to me. Now... When we say dear in this country, we, you know, oh, well, oh dear. You know, it's one of my little... But when I looked it up uh, in the Greek, I found it says, honour, price, signifies primarily accounted as of great price, precious, costly, much more precious, very dear, held in honour, esteemed, is honourable, precious, dear, held in honour, love, beloved, very dear. It's not like when we say, you are dear to me. When God is saying, you are dear to me, he's saying to you, you are of inestimable wealth, worth to me. You are of inestimable worth to me, never mind what you think about yourself. You are of inestimable worth, worth to me. So I just thought I wanted to start with that to ground you in who you are and how he sees you. Years ago he showed me a hyacinth bulb um, and it was one of those that you could grow in, in water in a glass jar and you could see the bulb and all the roots hanging down the bottom. But coming out the top was this beautiful flower and the fragrance. I mean, I love hyacinths. Anything with a heavy perfume, love that. And he said, that's like you. Your current body is like the bulb and the roots. There's no relation to what you're going to be like when you get there. And I thought, So he sees us like that because he knows what's going to sprout out the top. Isn't that lovely? Have a little think about that one. So, I got real carried away with this when I was doing this, so I may get carried away again. I'm going to start with the first verse of an old hymn by a lady called Jean Piggott. Uh, those of you who know me, I use 
Baptist hymnals and hymn books generally, old ones, part of my devotions in the morning, because it just says it for me. You know, you get so you can't say it, don't you? And this is this. Might speak to someone. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what thou art. I am finding out the greatness of thy loving heart. Thou hast bid me gaze upon thee, and thy beauty fills my soul. For by thy transforming power, thou hast made me whole. And the second verse is likewise. Oh, how great thy loving kindness, vaster, broader than the sea. Oh, how marvellous thy goodness, lavished all on me. Yes, I rest in thee, beloved. Know what wealth of grace is thine. Know thy certainty of promise, and have made it mine. So the love of Jesus and for Jesus is my passion and I make no apologies. And as I said before, I'll do my best to say business-like. But as I went working on this, I got caught up with the Beloved. Of all things, to get caught up with the Beloved in biblical submission, you wouldn't think you could do it, could you? Sounds as dry as you like, doesn't it? So I might drift a little bit here and there, but that's all right, isn't it? What you think about God is the single most important thing in your life. It's the single most important thing in the world, actually. So, following the last teaching, it seemed logical, as I've already said, to me and the Holy Spirit, as Paul would say, to follow on with biblical submission and then the authority and leadership, because they seem to hang together. And if the Lord will, this afternoon I'll be doing a little bit more. Those of you who were here last time, remember I did a little bit on New for Old. That reminds me. I needed to bring the cross in for this afternoon. Forgot that. Uh, which I touched on at the last pass in the baton. Um, so if it's there, perhaps we can hike it in. I've forgotten about it. So in this teaching, I will cover five areas of submission. Submission to God, submission to Christ, submission within the family, that's husband, wives and children, submission to authorities, that's government, and submission to leadership in the church. As always, we need to start with God who created us. He must be the starting point and the finishing point for any study. The Alpha and Omega... Uh, mm, Roger Price used to say that every uh, Bible study um, should glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Essentially, if we get our relationship with him right, everything else will follow. But if we can't or won't submit to him, we won't submit to anything or anyone else. Conversely, we may actually be in fear of man and submit to them rather than God. In that case, we need to get our fear in the right place. If you fear God, you won't fear anything else. And we usually fall into one of these two categories or pendulum swing somewhere in between. So before I go any further, this teaching does not set aside the Father heart of God and his outpoured love for us. If you like, this is the other side of the coin. Because Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord, this is the beginning of wisdom. And we must take the whole counsel of God, not just the strawberries, because we need our greens as well. It puts iron in us. I like strawberries. So 
So I might be going to say some things which you find hard. And as Joyce Mayer would say, we're getting backbone, not wishbone. And Graham would say, God's looking for soldiers and not chocolate ones that melt the first sign of heat. So as I said before, I sense I need to say it's a Bible study because we are going to look at what various words mean and we're going to study and see how they apply to us. God's words are mirror, which shows us where we're out of alignment, where we need to make mid-course corrections. We don't come to it to criticise it or twist it or make it mean what we want to mean, but to be instructed by it. There's an old saying, isn't there? A text out of context is a pretext. Got that one down. Well, so we need to listen with a view to obedience. And the Greek word is hupako, H-U-P-A-K-O-E. If you love me, Jesus said, you will obey me. That's John 14, 23. Loving obedience is what we're after. So if you're not up for this, I want to give you the opportunity to uh, slide off out. <laughs> because uh, what I have to say is serious but loving, but it is serious. So Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church in chapter 5 and he says in verse 14, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. If someone would like to hand these out now for me, that would be really good. This should be just about enough. On the back is the, um, the, the definitions and on, on that side is the, are, the, are the scripture references. So the first thing I want to talk about is the inerrancy of the Bible, the Word of God. There are various things that we need to consider before we look at the whole issue of submission and perhaps the first question is the inerrancy of the Bible. If we belong to the camp that says it was just Paul's opinion or I don't believe the creation accounts or creation is not incompatible with evolution or whatever we're already putting ourselves in our understanding above the revealed word of God and incidentally putting ourselves on the wrong side of God. So we need to settle it at the outset. The maker's instructions contained in this book are for us, all of them, Genesis to Maps, and the scripture for that statement is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Which says, and this is the New American Standard Version, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped, for every good work. We must believe therefore that the Bible is God's word and it's without error and is historically and scientifically true. As such it's the supreme authority for both life and conduct and we may not necessarily understand it all but by faith we accept its inerrancy and God is more than able to protect his word. The Bible is called the canon of scripture, that is as of a firing canon. And the word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, K-A-N-O-N, which had a very specific meaning. It was a straight edge used in building in the ancient world, a measuring rod or a ruler. It was used by a surveyor to see if a builder's wall was straight, upright and correctly proportioned. It was equivalent to today's plumb line or spirit level. And the word came to mean a standard rule by which things were judged. 
So the word is a straight edge against which we should test our lives. As we come to it, we not only read it, it reads us. And if you're really interested in going into the nuts and bolts of this, Roger Price has some stuff on problem passages and how we know the inerrancy of the Bible and all that. And if you're interested, I'll let you know how to get hold of the CDs. But uh, it's not my um, remit to do an apologetic today, which is in this context is a defence of something. It's through the Word of God that we become mature believers who are stable and content, who have peace of mind, self-control and poise, no matter what the circumstances. The Word of God's medicine and we cannot afford to stop taking it on a daily basis. If we do, our lives will reflect it. The Word of God is an essential ingredient in a Christian's life. It's the key that will unlock everything that we need to know as believers and it will enable us to become what the Father intended us to be, fully mature sons. We may have certain ideas, but what we need to do is take the scripture and lay it alongside. If there's a discrepancy, we must change our ideas in accordance with God's revealed word. One of the purposes of these courses of passing the baton is to bring the Word of God alive to you so that you can develop a hunger and thirst to understand the Bible for yourself and be, as we've seen already, workmen approved, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And another purpose is to raise up not just followers or believers but disciples. The definition of a disciple is a learner. In Jesus' day, his disciples were students and apprentices of the Master, and you will know that many, many people followed him round, but there were very few actual disciples. And when they were challenged, an awful lot of them turned away because they didn't like what he was saying. Um, and I, if I can remember it, there were four ways that the rabbis decided, I'm sure you know these, um, about their pupils. Uh, the first one they saw as a sponge, which just took up everything, the good, the bad and the ugly, <laughs> took it all up. Um, the next one was a funnel, drop it in the top and it dropped out the bottom, you know, oh wonderful stuff, oh give me more, give me more, but it, next week it's all gone, it's dropped out the hole in the bottom. The next one was a sieve and they sifted out all the minutiae, you know, was Paul married and how many children did Peter have, this sort of thing. Um, and the third one I think was a sifter and the sifter sifts out the fine flour and keeps that, throws away the dross. So what they were looking for um, were sifters. And it's an interesting thing because when he went along the beach and called the boys, you know, Peter and James and John and all the guys, um, they would have been turned down by the rabbis as not being suitable material, which makes me roll up. Because Jesus goes along the beach and thinks they'll do me just right. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the right wise. So he fix these fishermen. Oh, absolutely brilliant. So be encouraged. God still goes for the most unlikely. I think I'm sure I've told you before someone said to me once, I cannot imagine why God chose you to do it. I said, neither can I. Join a cut. I mean, I have no it's certainly not what I can do. I have no ability to do it. He told me once you it's you know, you have no ability to do what you do. Well that's good then. I'll carry on doing it. So disciples overwrite, if it was to go on the A-levels, I failed at the first level. 
overriding aim and burning desire was to be exactly like his master in thought, word and behaviour. Through memorization of his master's teaching and through imitation of his lifestyle, the disciple became qualified to become the teacher's reliable witness. To us, being a disciple of Jesus means learning and following his teaching and seeking to become like him. Perhaps today you'll want to make the transition from a follower, a believer, to being a disciple. You may, want to, you may find that you want to make that decision because there is always so much more. And though this is ostensibly a teaching about biblical submission or biblical submission, whichever way you like it, it's also a trumpet call. It's very interesting. When Joyce was, she's not read these notes, she didn't know. When she was praying for me this morning, she prayed about today's message being a trumpet call. And I thought, thank you, Father. I think I'm probably on course. It's a call to become all that Jesus won for us on the cross. To become a people of power and authority under the authority of the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the coming King. So like John the Baptist, I say, prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. That's Matthew 3, 3, should be on your sheet there somewhere. So what on earth are we here for? There is an urgency for us, us to understand God's eternal purposes in creating a people for himself, why we're here. We aren't saved to just hang on somehow until we can get to heaven. That's not the purpose of salvation. We are his ecclesia, his called out ones, a congregation or church, and it's from the Greek word ecclesia, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A, which means an assembly an assembly of the citizens of a state. From ek-kaline, which is E-K-K-A-L-E-I-N, to call, to come out, to summon. From kaline, to call, and that's a dictionary definition. We are called for a specific purpose. We are ones called out. We are summoned to the court of the king to live with different values in a different kingdom. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. John 18, 36. I suspect that the way that God is going to take me on these teachings, and it, I may be completely wrong, is I will begin to talk more about kingdom. Because sometimes I have found in what, in what I've seen in ministry recently, damage that has been done by churches, that church has become too important. People have become too important. Had they had their eyes on Jesus and on kingdom, they would not have fallen apart when the church fell apart. Or something happened to the church. It's because their focus has been horizontal instead of vertical. And that is the primary purpose and what God is doing in his shaking is to shake us out from putting people on pedestals. It's not a good place for them to be. It hurts when we fall off. No, I've been there. It is not good. And we are not called to be like them, to win them. We're called to be different. To live differently that we might be a light to people around us. 
we're called into something so glorious, so utterly amazing that everything pales into insignificance. We're called into a personal relationship with the God who not only created us and holds the very universe together by the power of his word, but who has an eternal plan for our destiny from before he created the world. That's exciting as far as I'm concerned. There is someone who will seek to discourage you in all of this. So don't get so excited. You know, just don't get so wound up about it. The times I heard that when I was a young Christian, you know, you know just don't get so excited. I was excited. I was popping. I was full of the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, for goodness sake. But they managed to put a blanket over me and squash me for a few years. But it pops up like a cork, you know those things that the children have, for, they used to have, uh, polystyrene things. They go along in the water, in the swimming pool, kicking their legs and holding on to this polystyrene thing. If you try to push it down, it just, didn't it? A bit like that, came to the top. They might have pushed me well down, but I popped up again. So before the foundation of the earth, Father had designs on you. He planned to produce an eternal companion for his son, you. All of his planning is coming to culmination in the bride of Christ of which you are a part. Shouldn't we be the most surprised and delighted people on the face of the earth? At the beginning of 2007, and some of you have heard me say this before, God spoke a word to me for his bride and it was coming, ready or not. He said that his church had been playing hide and seek with him, running away from him, not taking him seriously and that he was coming, ready or not. Though there was a light-hearted tone to his voice, I knew he really, really meant it. That it was time for the bride to begin to stir herself and realise he really, really is coming back for a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle. That's Ephesians 5.27. There's an urgency for us to rise up and become all that he calls us to be and that he won for us on the cross, to go in and possess, for us to become not just believers or followers but disciples of Jesus. There's an urgency to see where we are right now in the purposes of God and to understand the times and the seasons, to be sons of Issachar who knew the times and the seasons, and to be like the Bereans who search the scriptures. I'm going to leave you to do some digging to find out who those two references were from. But your key words are Issachar and Bereans. Most of you know. One in the Old Testament, one in the New. It's fair to say that in most churches the doctrine of imminency isn't taught. And by imminency I mean the soon appearing, the sudden parousia or coming of the Lord Jesus for his church. If we're not aware that this could happen at any moment, it leads to a casual mindset. Tomorrow will do. The return of Jesus is years away. I came into Christianity with the doctrine of imminency, and it's put an edge on me to be aware of the signs of the times and to walk closely with the Lord, anticipating his soon arrival and the catching away of his bride. I heard of someone recently who was um, uh, pretty well sick unto death and he was so disappointed because he thought he was going to see the rapture and found that he hadn't 
And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to go on working like it will be tomorrow um, because that's what I've got to do. I've been talking recently too about a new era. Some of you will know of the uh, Chris Larkin's prophetic words that have been coming out about the two pathways, a new era, and how at the school, when we were at the school, I sensed a paradigm shift, paradigm shift, got a picture of lady, paradigm shift. Didn't bother with the thing this time because you've all seen it before. There has been a paradigm shift in the heavenlies, whether we are aware of it or not. And it's required that the bride waken herself and make herself ready for the coming of the bridegroom. Years ago, there was a film entitled When the Kissing Has to Stop. I won't ask for a show of hands if anybody can remember that one. And you could say that we're in that now. It's time for the bride to actually recognise her bridegroom and respond to him. It's time for her to start getting excited about her wedding day, preparing her trousseau, anticipating the rest of her life with her beloved, dreaming a little about her wedding day and the honeymoon. Those of you who were here last time, remember we looked at the role of the bride, which is the one of responder to the initiative of the bridegroom. We looked at what it meant that we're called the bride because we are to be in the female or responding part of the relationship, even the guys, as Israel was to God their as their husband. And the essence of femininity is the ability and the capacity to respond this is why the church is called the Bride of Christ. Both male and female in the church are required to be responders to his initiative. Therefore he calls himself the husband of Israel and the bridegroom of the church. It's relational. God in his relationship to the church is the initiator as he was to his chosen people Israel to whom he was husband. This describes relationship. Our part is only ever to respond. Not to harden our hearts or be rebellious, but to lovingly respond to his initiatives with us. You know, we're terribly driven as a people. The hardest thing in the world is to get us to sit and allow God to touch us. Before the meeting started, I prayed for someone and I felt him saying, just let her wait for me to touch her. You know, Lord, I want it, I want it, I want it, I want it. What can I do, what can I do, what can I do, what can I do? Can I do? Buttons, 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 buttons. Why are you doing that? <laughs> you can't do anything. Anything at all. And I saw the glory of God pouring out of this lady. Worried about this and worried about that. But we, ha we have a pot that does nothing. It contains something. And when it's ready, you just tip it up and pour it out. If you'd asked me if I'd got anything for this morning, I would have probably said I can't remember a word. God just gets hold of my handle and tips me up and pours me out because I've sat there and he's poured in and I can't pour out till he pours in. We're in too much of a hurry to achieve something in our going off at a tangent, in our devotional time. We must learn to let him come and touch us because nothing happens until he initiates it. And when he touches you, then you're in bits meltdown, just meltdown and you learn to anticipate the touch of God okay then, sock it to me
you know, the difference between the Greek and the Jew. The Greek gets, uh, my peace I will leave with you. Uh, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, give by you. So the Greek goes away and gets out his lexicon and does a book full of studies on peace and give and all this. And the Jew says, okay then, responders. We need both. But we do, as a, as a race, need to learn to respond and to slow down and not to catch the pace of the world. The pace of the world is terrible. It just catches you up and you get n nothing's being achieved. It's just being caught up in activity. You need to develop the stillness that will touch others. So we've experienced over maybe the past 10 years or more the Toronto blessing, God coming down and touching the dry spots radically, renewal, revival, call it what you will, a revelation of his father heart. Sometimes though we get stuck, we get stuck even in current blessings like Toronto or maybe it's passed us by completely and we never knew about it or understood what God's purpose was behind it or perished the thought, some didn't even believe it was him. The purpose of this visitation was that there should be a restoration of our burning desire to love him and do his will. To share his father heart with all with whom we come into contact so that nobody is safe from a blessing with us about. That we may become father pleasers, living in the unconditional love of the father and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Meditate on that, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship. Someone said to me, I've got no fellowship. Yes, you have. You've got the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says so. Jesus not only did what the, he only did what the Father told him. And he's our brother and we want to have the family likeness. And God wants us to have the family likeness. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's Romans 8, 29, should be on your sheet. Our desire should be to be father pleasers, to take his yoke on us, because it's easy and light, not be tossing our heads and chafing at the harness and arguing all the way. What fun's that? that we may become a place of his habitation, not just visitation. God's all about habitation. He dwelt with the children of Israel in the wilderness wanderings. I nearly brought our picture of the tabernacle in the, um, in the wilderness this morning and then found there was no way that I could hang it up, stand it up without it slipping and sliding about and I thought, no, no point. Um, but you all know the, the uh, pictures um, of the, the tabernacle in the wilderness where God met with his people and we know from revelation that this is the consummation of his plan from the foundation of the earth a people for himself who will love him freely not under duress but freely a love affair the whole bible is a love affair I heard someone say the other day that the Holy Spirit said, you are my temple and I don't want timeshare. Weekends for the devil and the rest of the week for me. 
Life in the Spirit is about displacement, getting the rubbish out so that more of Jesus can come in, making room for the Holy Spirit. The church of the 21st century faces challenges the like of which maybe no church has faced since the time of the Apostles. Satan has done a very good job of immobilising us. We're in a heavenly war, but we are almost incapable of taking up our positions in the army, let alone knowing how to use our weapons. Probably most of us are not even aware that a war is going on, but it is silently, gradually, invading, capturing us to its culture. And like Gulliver, we find ourselves pinned down by hundreds of tiny ropes and immobilised. We are caught up in a global conflict with God on the one hand and Satan on the other. Ask Joe. He knew all about that. I want to do some definitions now and you'll find them on the reverse of your um, handout there. Submission. A definition. To subject, subjection or submission are mutually interchangeable words which come from the same root. In the Greek it's the word hupotasso which is primarily a military term meaning to rank, rank under, hupo under, tasso to arrange. Therefore, it's to arrange under in rank or order. So when the Bible says submit yourselves or be in subjection to, it's saying in effect get in rank under. And the dictionary definition of subject or rule is under the control of somebody or something such as a ruler or a law and obliged to obey like a subject nation. We've already looked at a related word, hupako, which is to listen with a view to obedience. Again, the prefix hupa, which is under. We are listening with a view to doing what is being said. Submission and obedience go together, loving submission and willingness to obey. The word submit itself is hupako, which is to retire or withdraw. Again, hupo under, eco to yield. Therefore you yield under to submit. This is seen metaphorically in, in Hebrews 13, 17 where it's used of the body submitting to, getting in rank under, spiritual guides in the church. Where it says, obey those who rule over you and be submissive for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Notice please for whom it would be unprofitable, not for the leaders, but for you. And the dictionary definition of submit is to yield to somebody, to give in to someone's authority, control or demands, to agree to undergo something, to defer to another's knowledge, judgment or experience. And you can see on your sheet there, it's from the 14th century Latin there. I can't pronounce it, so I won't try. But it's interesting that it's the source of the word of English missions, sending. So submit uh, is a word which probably causes problems most Christians. Uh, my personal view is that it's because we've received half a gospel, not the full gospel. We've received, come to Jesus as Saviour, get your needs met, but not Jesus as Lord. So discipleship has been non-existent, and we've muddled along from one move of God to another, making a patchwork quilt of our theology. 
and by that mean I, um, I mean a study of divine things, theology, if we have any theology at all. I sense that in this new era, heaven is pressing down like never before. That if we really open our hearts to him, we will experience all he wants to be for us and all he wants us to be in these end times. We are the end time church, you know. It's quite likely that we or our children are the generation on whom the end of the age will come. It's not going to go on and on. <laughs> so we've established that submission is a yielding to authority. Simple as that. We recognise the superior authority and we yield to it. The traffic light is red and we stop. We yield to it, hopefully. Just a little example that has come into my mind at the moment is um, the other day Joyce wasn't up to scratch to, to pick things up and do things and it was dustbin day and I'd forgotten and the Lord said go down now. So I went down and he said go out now. Uh, so I went out to pick up the box which needed taking out to the front and just as I got it out there our neighbour came in, the next door neighbour jumped out of his car and said, leave that, I'll do it. <laughs> if I hadn't obeyed at that moment, I'd have had to have carted that out there myself. <laughs> but God had someone to do it. It's split-second timing of obedience to what he tells you to do. This morning again, someone rang at quarter to nine. It was one of our trustees, that was fine. And as I put the phone down, the Lord said, do it now. And I knew what he meant. He meant ring my son. So I thought, no, it's probably not you, I'll do that. And I thought, yes it is, I know when I hear your voice. So I rang him. <laughs> and uh, he got a mouthful of toast and I told him what I was doing today and tomorrow and that did that. So that got that sorted because the Lord knew I've been saying, when am I going to let him know that I'm not going to be here today if he rings and his mother's never there and, you know. <laughs> so split second time and do it. When he asks you, do it. Someone's life, yours might depend on it. Our Sue, her husband had a, an example of that, didn't he, with the tree? Yeah, he was cutting a tree. Talking about the traffic light being red and we stop and we yield to it. But the first thing we have to look at in all this is, is the principle of God's created order. If we don't understand this at the outset, we'll not understand what follows regarding the whole issue of authority and submission generally. It's absolutely crucial. We have to see that it's God's created order we must follow. And herein lays the biggest problem, as I've already intimated. If Jesus is Saviour but not Lord, it will be impossible for us to put submission into practice because we've never surrendered our right to ourselves. We've never understood the exchange which took place at the cross. We've simply availed ourselves of a life insurance policy. So that's where new fraud comes in this afternoon. By that I mean we have surety that we will go to heaven when we die, but very little else. Our lives, therefore, will demonstrate little of God's authority and power because we've never laid down our arms and surrendered to his. Remember the old song, here I go again. Lay down your arms and surrender to his. So maybe today you'll want to surrender completely to Jesus and take him as Lord as well as Saviour, if you haven't already done so. We saw right at the beginning of the teaching uh, last year in January the basic order of creation that was in operation before the fall. And I'll just run through it quickly. It was God, angels, 
mankind, animals, plants. Adam had dominion over the animals and plants, and as I make the uh, point in the notes from last time, he did not have dominion over Eve. The principle of authority is the higher the rank, the greater the authority, and it's related to God's created order. We can see this in relation to, for instance, the Prime Minister. He has the authority vested in the office to make decisions which affect the whole of the country. We can't pop down to Downing Street and say, I don't think I agree with you doing that. His is the authority because of the position he holds, particular to the office. The rank is with the office, not the person. The person has earned the right or is qualified to hold the position which gives him or her the authority. A policeman can step out into the traffic and put his hand up and stop the cars. If we did it, we'd just get mown down. He carries the authority and the cars submit to this. And we see it right the way through society and it is God-given. Romans 13, 1 and 2 says, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. This is God's principle of authority being worked out in society, even if we personally do not happen to agree. This is why we should be the most law-abiding people on the planet. Our first area, our primary area, must be submission to the God who created us and gave himself for us. When Jesus came on earth, his death on the cross and ascension changed the order of things again. Because in Ephesians 1, 20 and 23, we see he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullest fullness of him who fills everything in every way. These verses show us that Jesus Christ the man was raised above the angels and the demons, and because we are in Jesus, we too are positionally seated far above principalities, rulers, and authorities. So the order changed to God, Jesus Christ the man and the church, angels, including fallen ones, unbelievers, animals, and plants. Having now in our position, possession an idea of what submission is all about and why we need to submit, I ask you, how submitted are you to God? Can you open your whole life before him without fear? Do you obey what he asks of you? If not, why not? What is it that prevents you from instant obedience? to the greatest authority that exists in the universe. Submission is an attitude of heart. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Jesus said in John 14, and he says it in verses 15, 21, 23 and 24. 
you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15.10 He links love with obedience. Why do we find it so difficult to submit and obey? Have you ever asked yourself that question? And it's probably only within the church context that the word's really considered, because in society generally, everyone does as he thinks fit. It's pretty close to anarchy, just like the Israelites were at the end of the book of Judges. Everyone did as they thought fit. That's right the last verse at the end of Judges. Submission is pivotal to our walk with God. It's an attitude of heart before him. Rebellion is also an attitude of heart. It's a satanically inspired strategy to keep us from knowing God and enjoying the fullness of what he wants for us. Just have a little think about that statement. God gave it to me on halfway up the stairs one day while I was preparing this. That rebellion is a satanically inspired strategy to keep you from knowing God and enjoying the fullness of what he wants for you. There's one person that has a vested interest in keeping you away from the throne room and that is Satan himself. And the one place he will never chase you into is the Holy of Holies. God said to Abraham in Genesis 17:1, Walk before me and be blameless or perfect to all order. But God never asks us to do something he hasn't already given us the ability to do. When he commands us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, the first commandment, he's already given us all that we need to do that. Those of you who were here will remember when I gave out the big pumpkin seeds. That is the seed, a representation of the divine seed that he has planted within you and in that DNA is everything you need to be obedient and to live a life of fullness so he's given it 1 John 4.10 says we love because he first loved us who made the first move on you? he's always making moves on you making moves on you right now we have the ability given to us to do this thing. When he asks us to be obedient, he's already placed the spirit of his son within us. So to be obedient shouldn't be difficult for us, should it? So why is it that when the word submission is mentioned, most people's hackles rise immediately? There's one lady who isn't here today, she's I've heard enough about submission, I'm not going to hear about that. She had no idea what it was going to be about. When we think of submission, we think of, I say jump, you say how high. Not like that. God set certain standards for human living in the garden. Adam and Eve were forbidden to eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Law and moral standards came into the world by God's command. His is the authority. But mankind breaks the command. They do what they are forbidden to do. They set their own authority against God's and from the very start they use their freedom to question and come into conflict with God's authority. They think that their own is better. They act on the basis of their own judgment and authority 
rather than accepting God's authority expressed in his commands. How many of us actually want to add to what God's given us? Joyce and I had a conversation last night. Lord had told her to pray something. I said, brilliant. She said, so I'm praying. I said, what's the bit on the end for? Um, adding to it, like Eve in the garden. And we mustn't touch it. Adding something does nothing, but it made her feel better because she felt she was doing something towards this thing. So if you can identify with that, that you need to put a bit more on the end in case it's not quite enough when God's told you to do something, it's time to say, Father, I'm ever so sorry. <laughs> it's plus nothing. It's all him. That's why his yoke is so easy. And his burden is so light. I call you to do the impossible, he says. I say, that's good. Because I can't do it. And I know I can't do it. The problem is when we think we can do it. How many of you had children? I can do it, I can do it. And they're over at me the next minute. <laughs> Doesn't he love us? So when Adam is called to give an account before God, he refuses to accept responsibility for what's happened. He blames Eve and then God. He blame shifts the authority and responsibility for his actions. It wasn't his fault. It was either Eve's or God's, but it certainly wasn't him. So the responsibility and blame are shifted. In shifting the blame in this way, he gave away his God-given authority. God warned him about not eating from the tree before he created Eve. Adam's responsibility was to share the command of God with his wife and then to protect her from going against it. The rejection of this authority has serious consequences for humanity and the world. To disobey God's authoritative commands leads to disaster, disunity and disarray. Acceptance or rejection of authority is not a take it or leave it matter. It matters vitally to the well-being of all humankind. In these days God is bringing back his authority to his body, which is the church. It's just reminding me of something that happened uh, in ministry some years ago when we had someone with us um, and I was fearful for her safety. And the Lord said, let her go. It was late in the evening, let her go, let her go. And I thought, I can't let her go. She goes driving in this, you know, I might not be hearing you straight. If she goes driving in a state like this, um, that wouldn't be a good idea. So I prevented her from going, to my cost. I passed the night trying to sort things out. And I realised afterwards that what I'd done was, I'd been an amateur providence. Because I couldn't trust that I was one, hearing God, two, that he was big enough to look after this situation. I couldn't let go of her and therefore I gave myself a big problem. Now I know I'm hearing from him, don't I, most of the time even if it seems bizarre. Um, it would have been better had I let the dear one go. She didn't want to be there. When she found out what it meant, she didn't want to stay and she wanted to do a runner. And so I tried to hold her back because I was fearful for her safety. Sounds all very laudable. It was actually disobedience. Because he knew best. 
he's very good because he just keeps trying with us, doesn't he? So what I'm saying, I suppose, is even when it seems like foolishness, the cross was foolishness, wasn't it? Peter, didn't he try to stop Jesus? And he said, uh, you know, get out of my way, Satan. So he's bringing back his hierarchy of authority and responsibility. And he's giving us a choice. When the Bible asks us to be subject to, submit to, to surrender to, to obey, Jesus is simply asking us to love him and demonstrate it by our obedience. Faith without works, James says, is dead. Attitude is all. Hearts that are turned to him will find the struggle ceases. The more we know him, the more we will desire what he desires, the more we will turn our hearts towards him because he's good. Something that is sadly lacking in the body of Christ in the 21st century is the reverent fear, awe and respect of the Lord. And this is not setting aside the teaching on the Father heart of God. I love the Lord with all I have, but I have a real and healthy fear, a biblical fear, which is total respect for who he is and his supreme majesty. He defies description, he's so wonderful, awesome, amazing, astonishing, astounding. But one of the things that grieves me in the body is if we're not actually frightened stiff of him in the wrong way, we're casual. He should be the primary object of our love, affection, loyalty and trust. He's altogether lovely. And what we think about him, as I started off saying, is the single most important thing in our lives. But sometimes we are so casual with him. So then the fear of the Lord, which the Bible tells us, is just the beginning of, the wis of wisdom. And if you don't have a fear of the Lord, and you know you don't, ask him to give it to you. You're not going to be trembling in your boots. But if you hear uh, Graham Cook, for instance, he will say the same thing. He knows how much God loves him. But equally, he has a, a, a reverent respect and fear of the Lord. I've heard him speak on it. There is a wrong fear, you see, where you see him as a schoolmaster, harsh and judgmental and, and brutal. It is not like that. That's the other bloke. But the Bible clearly says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and I want wisdom, don't you? The Amplified Bible says it like this. The reverent fear and worship of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and skill, the preceding and the first essential the prerequisite and the alphabet, the A to Z. A good understanding, wisdom and meaning have all those who do the will of the Lord. Their praise of him endures forever. And Proverbs 1, 7 and 8 says, The reverent and worshipful fear of the Lord is the beginning and principle and choice part of knowledge, its starting point and its essence. Again, this is the Amplified. But fools despise skillful and godly wisdom, instruction and discipline. My son, hear the instruction of your father. Reject not nor forsake the teaching of your mother. So as I said earlier on, we need to get our fear in the right place. And the lack of getting our fear in the right place leads to a casual relationship with God, a frustration of his grace and a lack of understanding of who he wants to be to us. 
is ignorance combined with undealt with rebellion of the fallen nature in us in relation to the Creator. What happens when we don't get our fear in the right place and we're rebellious is that we will not come into submission. We can't, we're in rebellion, mutually incompatible. We will not put our neck under the yoke and be yoked with him. We chafe against his commandments, we're high-handed and let's face it, we're just ignorant. So fear God and you won't fear anything else. I'm working on that. I want to get to the place where it's no fear because it says perfect love or love perfected casts out fear. A worshipful, reverent fear and awe of the Lord is just the beginning and if ever we needed wisdom it's now. I hear Christians all the time boasting about their resistance to God. Beloved, these things did not ought to be. I heard someone recently say that when they looked at Psalm 91, but this whole thing is conditional. Yes. <laughs> it was uh, the first uh, part of it. and In the Amplified, there's a lovely note on it. Most of the promises in the Bible are conditional. If you do this, I'll do that. We are short-sighted and blind, mere children, and with respect, we don't know which side our bread's buttered, which is what my mother would have said. God doesn't want the I may be sitting down, but inside I'm standing up, sort of yielding or submission to him. That's rebellion disguised, passive-aggressive. Incitement to rebellion, as I said before, is a satanically inspired strategy. What looking for is a voluntary yielding of ourselves, our will, to his divine authority. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. A recognition that we're his possession and we are dear to him. That was why I read that out at the beginning. We are dear to him. And as dearly beloved children, he asks for our obedience. He doesn't demand it. He will never bring you into subjection or submission. You volunteer it. You put your head in the harness to be trained and led by him. 1 Peter 1, 3-9 says, and this is the seed, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love, the progression there. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Father doesn't get angry with us, but like every good parent, and he's the best, he's wanting to see his children mature into healthy adults who are useful in society and their sphere of influence, into fully mature sons. Romans 8.19 says the creation waits in eager expectation 
for the manifestation of the sons of God. Some translations say that the creation groans. It's waiting for something. And that something is the manifestation or the demonstration of the divine DNA which is in every one of us. God has a plan for each one of us that will thrill us to the core of our being. Don't let allow the devil to rob us of our inheritance by his lies. He will try every trick in the book to knock you out of the race. Graham Cook says, if you think you're too small to make a difference, you've never been, obviously never been in bed with a mosquito. <laughs> Beloved, you are far from insignificant and the enemy knows it even if you don't. Have you ever thought that there's a carrot out there somewhere just waiting to be manifested? Carrots the size of your arm. There's a body of water out there waiting for someone to walk on it. Manifested sons. Creation is waiting. How long are you going to keep it waiting? It puts rebellion in a different light, doesn't it? Rebellion, stubbornness, it's just silly because it only affects you and that adversely. You miss out. Simple as that. If you have it, give it up. There's an amnesty here today. Give it right up to God, right now. Let it go. When I was praying about this meeting here, uh, a week or two weeks ago, I saw the cloud over this place. It's over this area, it's over this room, the cloud. God is here. So if you want to, there is an amnesty to give up anything that is baggage, not luggage. Anything that you are carrying that is impeding you in your walk with the Lord is just a case of giving it up. He will take it. Angels are here, got their trolleys with them. He said to me this morning, I feel it's okay to say, I was just making a cup of tea and I was praying in tongues. And as I started praying in tongues, he said, I'm going to give you everything you ask for. Thank you, Father. That was the, there were two already, there was about the being, uh, if you haven't given your heart to the Lord, as, as Lord in Lordship and you want to be a disciple, there's those two and there's this one and some more to come. Not sure I'm challenging the body of Christ, I'm not. <laughs> it's the way we grow. Have you ever thought that when you were in rebellion you're actually conspiring or covenanting and agreeing with Satan against God? As I said before, there's this satanic strategy to keep you from becoming all that God wants you to be. Believe me, it is a plan that he has got. To make you feel, I can't do that, I'm too insignificant, I've got low self-esteem, I don't think much of myself, and God says, shut up! I have raised you and seated you in my son. All you've got to do is say, yes, get the nodding dog syndrome. Yes, Lord. One of my trustees has got lots of puppets, and he's going to bring some over and show me, and I'm hoping to work a few off of him. <laughs> Fancy doing one of these meetings with a puppet or six? Charles, yes, Charles. 
so what God wants you to be is to, 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 to show forth the character and the nature of Jesus in Job 22-21 there's a verse that says yield now and be at peace with him and thereby good will come to you God is life's summum bonum that is the Latin for everything he's all there is he's sufficient he's the fullness he's the totality he's enough he's sufficient yield abandon yourself to him search him out he will be found of you you know you can have as much of him as you want he told me this years ago you can have they can all have as much of me as they want because he's fast okay we'll take a little break there five minutes